Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Well, hello, Neil, and hello, historians. Welcome to a sunny uh, Leitrim and sunny Dublin, by the look of it for you, Neil. That's beautiful. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Thank God. Finally, finally. So we have a real treat today. We're talking to Justin Fenton. Uh, His book is We Own This City. Uh, It's based in the city of Baltimore. And most Irish people will be familiar with the place from having watched The Wire, presumably, and perhaps having read David Simon's uh, works, The Corner and Homicide Year and The Killing Streets. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about We Own the City, which is a thrilling ride like I, I didn't know what to expect when I picked this one up um, and yeah. I read it actually quite a while ago but I mean I just it's jaw dropping stuff right, about it? corruption and then having watched We Own the City recently as in last week um, I just suddenly realised that uh, Justin plays a uh, cameo role as himself <laughs> a couple of times <laughs> you see him popping up yeah with that we say hello Justin Fenton very welcome, welcome to the historians Justin. hi guys thanks for having me on more than welcome. We're really thrilled to have you on. We're a bit, as Derek probably elaborated there, a couple of fanboys here in the room. You know, obviously the, the wire, a lot of people across the world and, and Ireland obviously would, would, would know and be familiar with that work. And then relatively recently, somebody had mentioned to me, you know, there's a, like a follow up called We Own This City. And I, I wasn't actually aware of it. And you know the way you have a bit of a trepidation when you love a show? That you go into an associated show and you're like, oh, is it going to stand up? Is it going to be like, man, no way. It blew me away. It was like really, really gripping stuff. It was almost like fictional. Like, you can't believe this is true, right? This is all true stuff. It, it really is uh, amazing and terrible, the things that happened. And it really did lend itself to a follow-up show. Uh, it was pretty um, cool that, you know, it came out on the 20th anniversary of the premiere of The Wire and really got to like explore like a wrinkle of the show that that was there in The Wire, but wasn't the, the point of the show. You know, corruption and, you know, misconduct was present. They didn't like gloss over it. But here we got to really dive into that specifically and based on true events. Yeah. And just give a bit bit of background there, Justin. Like, so you weren't directly involved in the stories, you know, in The Wire itself, right? Were you just like a fan like everybody else? And then you got an opportunity to write about like like what is a follow-up? Is that the correct terminology? Yeah. I mean, so I, I started as a reporter at the Baltimore Sun in 2005. So The Wire was already, um, it had aired for a couple seasons at that point. And a few years later, I got the chance to move to the crime desk and basically do what D- David Simon did for The Sun when when... He was a reporter for the paper. And so in the course of doing that, I got to know him eventually. Uh, You know, he still lives in Baltimore. He's still interested in what goes on. You know, before he did fictional shows, he was a reporter and wrote books and nonfiction. And he still, you know, knows people and is interested. So he would reach out to me sometimes just, you know, inquiring about things or passing along a tip. And we got to know each other that way. Um, So, uh, yeah. 
I'm a reporter myself, so you know I do. I'm not a crime reporter per se, but I work with the crime reporters and sometimes do a lot of crime work ourselves. We have a lot of gang activity here in Ireland that's making headlines probably around the world. You know, we just had a recently big high-profile trial of of a Dublin gangster, and it's like something straight out of out of the wire, like our own version of the wire, if you like. You know, um, just to clarify, he was. Uh, Vindicated, he, he was not guilty just for legal reasons, I have to say, in case anybody knows who we're talking about. But like, you know, really exciting stuff for you. I mean, you were a relatively junior reporter when 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 you got involved in this story. Uh, I mean, it, at that point, I've been doing it for a while. Um, I started on the beat in about 2008 and the gun trace task force story came to light in 2017. Uh, for people who don't know that the story basically, you know, first we had, I guess, I guess the, the major you know, uh, breaking point, I guess, for lack of a better word, was the death of, of Freddie Gray. He was a young black man who was being taken to, to jail and, and died in custody. And this was in part of the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, where it seemed like every few weeks, every month, there was an extremely high profile case of police brutality. And you would see pr protests erupt and things like that. And so we, we had that in Baltimore and, and they promised police reform. Coming out of that, they said, you know, the, the Justice Department, the, the federal government came in and said, you know, we are going to clean up Baltimore's police department. I don't quite know why it took them so long to get here, but that's beside the point. But um, so the gun trace task force scandal, like it uh, sort of un unfurls, uh, you know, at the moment where I think what, that's one of the things that makes it so extraordinary is that these officers were robbing people and lying and dealing drugs like while the federal government is here supposedly investigating and cleaning the place up. And it really just sort of like tore the covers off of like how deep the misconduct could be. You had officers who were charged and who flipped, you know, they started cooperating and detailing everything that they did. So you're hearing it from them in their own words. And it's just sort of remarkable, you know, how much was exposed. So I, I came onto that story you know, I think I really started to dig into it after the, the trial because there's so much pre-trial that you just can't get into. People won't talk. Um, but now we had a lot more to work with. And I just sort of continued to follow the story. And to set up as well for you know, the background to all this, because like you're a Baltimorean. You, you studied at the University of Maryland. You're you're living there. To me, it's you know, in, in sleepy, lovely Leitrim. It's a it's a very alien world to what I would be used to. But what's behind all this, really? I mean, Baltimore was a prosperous city. One million um, people living in it. In around the 50s we, and 60s, you started to see what was called the white flight isn't it like people started to leave the city beautiful homes beautiful terraced homes i mean i had a friend of mine a good friend of mine who's just come back from baltimore and uh, he was taking pictures along north avenue and you you know you go oh, okay like there's there's not like this should be really nice you know um and uh, this gets to the heart of what the problem is and it ties in then there's a lot of messages in this story around the war on drugs as well and there's a message for america at large that if you don't grab a hold of this stuff, you know, what, what, it, what it can lead to. But like on a personal level, what, what was it like for you now growing up in that city and then becoming a reporter? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I did not have plans on covering crime. Um, you know, I, I decided I wanted to be a journalist probably my junior year of high school. And I studied it at the University of Maryland. And really, all you hope for is to get a, get a job. I was fortunate to be hired by the Baltimore Sun out of school and, and worked in some of the suburban bureaus. And I felt like the crime stories, I felt like I, I found them inherently compelling. And I felt like the readers did, too. You know, it didn't take a lot of work. It, it seemed like, you know, you, you didn't have to explain to people why it was interesting, like perhaps government reporting or something like that. People were inherently interested. Um, and so, yeah, I got a chance to cover the, 
crime beat. And it's, it's, a, it's an extremely difficult beat. We have, you know, it's a city now, as you mentioned, the population keeps declining. We're now at about, you know, 550,000 people down from a million uh, several decades ago. And our murder rate, you know, there are 350 people killed annually here. That's just enough that um, people expect you to cover all of them in some way. And, and it's also too much to cover in some way. And so you're really like triaging and trying to find interesting ways of getting at it. And, you know, police misconduct was something that would, of course, come up. And it was something we were, of course, interested in, but always very difficult to prove. You know, a lot of times, as I explained in the book, it was sort of you know, there would be a single officer who would get in trouble. You know, there was an officer who dealt drugs. They arrested him. They convicted him. They said, he's a bad apple. You know, that, that phrase, bad apples. And, mm. and then there would be another bad apple and then another and another. <laughs> um, this scandal, I think, was really jarring in the sense that it was an entire squad. You know, they couldn't say, well, there was one guy who went rogue and, and we don't tolerate that. It won't happen again. It was like an entire squad. And they had come together from other areas of the department where they had been doing these things with other people. I think it was a shocking thing in the sense that not, not that I didn't think these things couldn't happen or was naive to them, but like sort of the scale was 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 really startling. Um, just that it had been going on for years and years and years. And to hear the officers say, I never thought I was going to get caught. I, I, I didn't worry about that. Even like laughing on the wiretap recording saying like, oh, yeah, like, it, you know, they're really going to come after us for, for this. That's what we try to explore. Sort of how does how does this happen? Because I think a lot of people's reaction was sort of, well, this must go to the highest levels and everybody must have known. And so we try to explore, OK, so to what extent did people know? And if they didn't know, why didn't they know? And if they had suspicions, why didn't they act on those suspicions? And we try to. So to get at that, because I think that's the real it's easy to just say the entire department is just, you know, a cesspool and there's all these awful things. It's a little more complicated than that. There's a lot going on here. And, and in the book and the show, we try to you know get into that. And um, just in relation to the show, just, which we, we watched, just how accurate are the depictions of the characters in the show? And in particular, the standout Wayne Jenkins, just just how accurate portrayal because you mentioned there in the wire taps how they're laughing and gloating about you know we're going to get away that's actually depicted in the show right i mean those mm -hmm. those scene in the show so you know almost frame by frame that show how how accurate does, does it capture the the, the characters and in particular Mr. yeah Jack so it's definitely a, a fictionalized version of true events but i have to say i mean i was involved in the writing i was mm. a consultant i got to be in the, involved in the writing process and there are many scenes that are word for word exactly what people wow. said things happen exactly as they went down there's other things where you know we don't know what was said so we had to sort of you know there, yeah. i wouldn't say take liberties but you know it's it's a, it's a, it's a version it's our version of what we think happened but based on things that really did happen yeah, it's extraordinary because then you see footage of Jenkins like it's up there. There's plenty of clips of him on YouTube. And then you compare that to what's in the show. And like you said, it's it's like John John Bernthal's depiction was just fantastic, wasn't it? Like he just oh, absolutely. nailed it. He just <laughs> yeah. he was. <laughs> he was. He was he was more Wayne Jenkins than Wayne Jenkins was. And I, and I think again, that's part of like one of the things people said consistently, because I frankly was not familiar with Jenkins before all this happened. I mean, I think within the department, he was seen as somebody who really sort of got the job done and they relied on him. But we tend to focus on murders and we tend to fo focus on what the leadership is doing and, and the district, you know, level stuff. You know, there's there's many aspects of the department that gets covered, but sort of this these plainclothes officers, as they're called, who just ride around getting guns and jacking people up like that. That's sort of like. The, the output of that is like not significant in the sense that it's not going to get our attention that someone got made a gun arrest, for example. Um, 
So I wasn't really familiar with Jenkins, but he, he was described to me consistently as somebody who was sort of really over the top. And part of the reason why he, he, he worked very hard at trying to convince people that they had nothing to worry about with him, that he was a hard worker. You know, there was an anecdote where a prosecutor recalled that he called her in the middle of the night because he wanted to make sure that they were doing the search warrant the right way. So why would anybody suspect a guy like that is doing things the wrong way? Because he worked on it. He put a lot of work into that. Wow. And you spoke to him, didn't you, when he was in prison? Um, I didn't get to speak with him um, before the book came out. He, he was playing games. <laughs> you know, he was sending me stuff through his wife and, and, you know, trying to get stories out there and he wouldn't talk. And then after the book, he, he, he wanted to talk and it was, you know, uh, it, it really didn't happen. I spoke with some other members of the force uh, and, and, and there was a key member who really talked to me a lot about what they were doing, but the Jenkins, uh, you know, he still hasn't really fully spoken out. And yeah. I think he's the, the challenge with that is, is the question of how much of a reliable narrator he, he is in some ways. I'm thankful I didn't speak with him because it would be, I think that there would have been a lot of stuff he would have thrown out that would have been misleading or sort of mucked things up. <laughs> he, he looks like a bit of a fantasist, right? He's got this whole, he, you know, he believes his own hype. Um, and I'd say he's created this, this intricate world of justification within himself and probably doesn't see, well, that's another thing actually, um, leads me on to in the show, the, all the, the main characters who were arrested, you know, they didn't seem to care very much. It's like, nah, yeah. okay, we're caught. So what, you know, what are you going to do? And, and do you think, is, is, that, is that how they, they were? Yeah, I mean, the scene where the police commissioner walks in to sort of stare at him and, and you know, in, you know, sort of express his disappointment and that all the other officers looked away and he said that Jenkins just stared right back at him, you know, and that's and he was the one that in jail, you know, the officers were put in the same jail, um, probably strategically, and they were able to talk to each other at first. And Jenkins is the one saying, let's stick to our stories. Let's stick to our stories. You know, we can we can beat this. Um, you know, he, he's, in a, he's a fascinating guy in the sense that you know, I don't know how people keep all these things straight in their head. You know, I don't know how you have an alternate version of, of the truth in your head for so many different events. And also at his sentencing, you know, so many people said, you know, his coworkers said he was always at work. His family said he was always available for his family. His community said he was always around. It's like he's everything to everybody. And, uh, you know, I, I remember sitting there thinking, I don't know that people in my life would would describe me that way. You know, how, how are these guys able to sort of... Yeah, yeah do that um and I, but again it speaks to like sort of the psychology of, of someone who wouldn't take on these these types of things yeah yeah exactly yeah i think you nailed his, his character right there and, and what do you think about for yourself now about the whole notion of probable cause so say obviously you were a crime reporter you're going down to these areas around lafayette and all that do you get pulled Oh no! No, you never. Yeah, well, they obviously <laughs> they, don't, they know who you are now. But would it be like would would it be normal on a, on a people's normal run of business to get pulled by the cops every so often? No, I mean the reason I say that is okay. because a I'm white and b they they do this in the, the traffic enforcement is like extremely lax in areas other than the most high crime areas, and that's because police are using it not to enforce traffic laws, but to really get into people's cars and search. Um, you know, in areas where there is lots of gun violence where people are being shot there's lots of drug dealing the officers are taught to use whatever you can to to get into those vehicles and that get, getting the guns off the street is important and so and we saw that again sort of really um what was most interesting in watching all the body camera footage and body cameras are relatively new here they started to come on around 2016 and the unit didn't really have them while this was all going on um but not the footage of when they successfully 
make a good arrest, but the times that they stop people and, and not, nothing came of it, because you don't hear about those, you know, they don't hold a press conference and show you the, the video where they didn't get anything. But so there were videos of people, you know, sitting in their cars, having lunch, and the officers pull up and say, hey, your car is parked too far from the curb. You mind if we search? You know, and they search and they don't find anything. Now, that guy probably goes home and grumbles about it and says, you know, the cops you know, harassed me today. But, you know, he's got a life. Life goes on. He's got other things to do. You know, but th that kind of like everyday harassment is something that black residents in the city's high crime areas just have to. They're they're They've been told that that's the way it is. Um and, and, you know, to, to, to a certain extent, again, like there is an outcry to do something about the violence. You know, these are the neighborhoods experiencing the most violence and people saying we don't want this to occur. And so they sort of cry out for police and the government to do something. And this is what the government and the police do. Wow. So just just to clarify, so this is still going on. Nothing's changed since... I mean, I, I think that so that federal oversight that I was talking about earlier, I mean, we're we're several years into that now and everybody is wearing body cameras and there's a lot more oversight. Um, so, I, you know, I think the police have they're making, uh, you know, uh, many, many fewer arrests than they used to back in the uh, zero tolerance days where they were making lots and lots of arrests as a way of trying to, you know, intimidate people and, and keep keep order. They were making over 100,000 arrests a year. Last wow. year it was. 12,000, um, you know, traffic stops are way down, shootings by police are way down. So I, I, I don't want to say things haven't changed. I also don't want to say that it's, you know, that these things don't happen anymore. I still think that people are, are being profiled and uh, searched unfairly, but, you know, we're not getting, um, with all this being out there, this, this story being exposed and all the exposure that it got, I don't have my phone ringing with people saying it's still going on. You've got to do yeah. something. So I have to think that, you know, there's been some improvement. Right. But but is it still is it still the, the, the black thing? Is, is it still if you're a black person in Baltimore on your way home from work or going to pick up the kids or whatever, it's still a good chance you're going to get pulled over for example, example you gave just park a little bit further away from the curb or your, your taillight not working. So is that is that a regular daily, you know, experience for black people still in Baltimore? I, yeah. I think it likely is, but not to the extent that it was. Yeah. OK. OK. Gosh. You think you think when these 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 issues get such big exposures, you you think you know somebody comes in and cleans up, uh, you know it's brought out into the light and everybody you know says sorry and, and moves on. But but clearly it takes a lot. It's, of it, it's quite complex though as well in, in the fact that the way America is is run as a whole. That I mean you know you, you talk about the mayor of Dublin. The mayor of Dublin wears a fancy chain and comes out for St Patrick's Day parade. That's it. Mayor of Baltimore is a job managing the finances and whatnot. And if the money isn't there, I mean, you could say the arrests are down from 100 to 12,000. You know, for all we know sitting here, I'm not saying you, you, you probably do. You know, that could be just budgetary constraints. They don't have the, the, the money to employ the cops to enforce it. You know, it's, it's a really complex problem yeah. to solve. And then you've got the war on drugs in there as well. And then you've got the privatization of, uh, of prisons. I mean, that to me is bonkers. Cap you know, cap capitalize uh, the whole prison system. Oh, yeah. Let's get more, you know, stick 100,000 people away. They're making money while somebody's making money um, and it's coming out of somebody else's pocket. You know? Luckily, we don't have private prisons in Maryland. Uh, that's that's one okay. thing I okay. deal with. <laughs> but, uh, but no, you're right. I mean, I, the reasons for the decline in arrests is, is complex. I mean, you know, there's some people who say it's not enough, that it's 
You know, it's 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 t- it's tipped too way the too far the other way, and you hear all the time from police saying that they're afraid to do their jobs. You know that the protests and the accountability has gone too far, and that they're afraid to to, to get involved because they don't want to get in trouble. And so, yeah, people complaining the police aren't doing enough. Um, the the department is down. It's it's budgeted at twenty eight hundred officers, which is one of the largest in the entire country. But it's budgeted at twenty eight hundred, and they have six hundred fifty vacancies, and they fill the vacancies by paying overtime. So you know it's extremely complex, um, and yeah, there's not one reason for it. I think that the decline in, in arrests is both you know something that officials there's a, a difference in philosophy and also a, a difficulty getting officers to engage in in some respects. And you got people saying, you know, there's open air drug dealing going on in my neighborhood. Do something about it. And on the other hand, you got people talking about the, the futility of the war on drugs. It's extremely complex. Yeah. And, and also, just, just to take it from an officer's perspective, dangerous, right? Dangerous work. Like how many police officers are wounded or killed every year? Do you know, like, like roughly speaking? Is it, it, I, mean, I mean, here I wouldn't, you know, we, we look, do not see that as a regular thing. I think that the, the potential for danger is there. And that's really ingrained into officers and training that any, any situation can be deadly. And, and that's why we see a lot of shootings is that officers are frankly afraid. They, they, they don't know what's coming. They uh, in the past have re- reacted by reaching for their guns. I think it's something that doesn't get enough attention here. Um, you know, when I started on the beat, police shot 33 people uh, in 2008. They shot like four people last year. I think, mm-hmm. I, I think they've shot four in the past 18 months. Wow. Um, remarkable. I mean, that is a major, major, major change. And they were, and the ones that did occur were, you know, for the most part, you know, not even controversial. People said, yeah, well, that, that was a situation where the officer had no choice but to shoot. Uh, there was, there was one case, I will say that, you know, if anybody locally is listening, that, that definitely was controversial, but for the most part, they've sort of passed by without protests or outrage because it's all on video and you can see it for yourselves now. It's a, t- but, it's a tough job though, isn't it? Like really, you know, in fairness, like, for, yeah. You know, I don't know if they're particularly well paid or anything like that. Our police officers here, generally speaking, are unarmed. We don't have the same sort of like, you know, uh, gun cultures we would have in the States. You know, they have armed specialist units, which are more and more uh, obvious these days on the streets because of the gang culture that's been increasing and the gangs are, are armed, you know. And there's an argument here, just, you know, to arm the police. But they say, you know, you give the guns to the police, you're just going to have more guns, yeah. more guns, more guns, right? You know, I, I actually had the opportunity in about 2010, 2011 to do some ride-alongs with the police in, in Ireland. Um, oh, right. That, was, wow. that oh. was when The Wire was showing over there, and I had first been invited to London by The Independent. Uh, they had a reporter who wanted to switch places with me, and so he came to Baltimore and did ride-alongs with the police there, and then I, I went and, and did his job for a week. And then there was an editor, and I'm so... I'm so I actually tried to look this up right before the interview and I couldn't figure it out. I can't remember which paper it was, but the, an Irish newspaper editor said, we saw that thing you did. We want you to come here and do that. And I spent some time riding around and I heard the exact same thing that you said. There, there's two there's two things that as a, as a young person, as a young reporter really stood out to me. They could not understand why we don't have the way our U.S. healthcare system is run. And they also said, we don't want guns. We think it would escalate situations. So the, the, the most serious thing that we got into that night was there was a young man having a, a a college student who'd been working really, really hard on his like thesis and he had a mental break and stripped down all his clothes and got naked in the middle of the street and was yelling about Mick Jagger and they oh. threw him in the back seat and I had to switch to the front so I didn't have to sit with the naked uh, yelling guy. But that was my Dublin... Uh, <laughs> man, you know what? That's not every weekend down in Temple Bar. You know, that was... Yeah. 
<laughs> it wouldn't be too too unusual, but like you know, I, I'm I'm just picturing the poor reporter that took yeah. her shoes in Baltimore, <laughs> been, like keeping his head down and wearing like seven, uh, you know, bulletproof vests. body vests. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back for a second now to the cameras, right? Because this, this is there's a mystery um, that isn't solved and uh, wasn't, wasn't solved in, in the show. But the, the character of Sean uh, Souter, uh, the actor's name escapes me, but uh, he Jamie played Jamie Hector, Yeah, he, he was Marlowe Stan. He's a completely different character in The Wire. He was the, the infamous Marlowe Stanfield, very evil, evil character. And um, I, I recall there was body camera on his partner. And he went down this alleyway and he didn't come out. Shots fired. Officer down. And it didn't capture the act. It didn't capture the act, you know. So that's still unsolved, right? As to, as to what exactly, or has it been ruled on in some way? As a... it, is, it is listed as unsolved. It is generally considered to be considered a suicide, um, but has not been ruled as such. And it remains very controversial. The show, David wanted a consensus in the in the writer's room and he wanted the, sh the, sh the show to sort of take a position on that. He felt very strongly that the evidence pointed to a suicide. And he actually wrote on his, his personal website a very extremely long essay sort of explaining how he came to that. But it, it remains something that is sort of mysterious. You know, I, I'm, I'm not absolute in my feelings on it because, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And as this whole mm. saga has explained, you know, it could be years before we find out things. But I think that the evidence largely points in that direction and we try to portray it that way. And again, I don't know what I'm, I'm talking about. There was a detective uh, who uh, is out with his partner. He's, he's following up on a homicide. He gets shot in the head. There's a manhunt. There's a huge reward for information. The police are pulling out all the stops trying to figure out who killed this de detective. And really, they weren't able. They ultimately um, started to think he actually did it to himself and staged it to look like a, a homicide. And as it would turn out, it was the day before he was supposed to uh, testify before a grand jury in the gun trace task force case because he had worked with Wayne Jenkins and others um, and had been involved in an incident where there was um, some drugs planted on somebody and they were wrongly sent to prison. So, you know, for all those reasons, it's extremely controversial here. A lot of conspiracy theories even. And, um, you know, but that's where it stands. It's sort of a dormant case as, a, as a, after all these years. And I think they played it very, they did it very well in the show, right? You're just they hedge it a little bit. Yeah. It's not clear exactly. Not at all. No, no. It's not told specifically, definitively one way or the other. It hints towards a suicide, but you're not absolutely clear. But he, he was compromised himself. Like that's, that was the, the whole point. That was the background to, to that incident. Well, the, the, the thing there is that, I mean, his, his lawyer and his family say he wasn't, you know, that he had nothing to worry about. He would not have done that. And others say, well, it, you know, he, he had information. He, you know, who knows what else he was involved with? Um, you, know, you work with these officers who are doing these kinds of things. Perhaps he did something that even, even if it was something he regretted that he might ultimately be held accountable for. I think ultimately there was a lot of officers who were sort of implicated in various ways in the scandal who did not do any prison time. You know, they, they, there was one guy who cooperated with the federal investigators and he hasn't seen a day of prison. He's selling real estate and somewhere out West. So, I mean, you know, I don't know that he could assume that, but you never know what's going through somebody's head and their reputation and their family and things like that. And that's, again, part of what sort of um, makes it um, this, this swirl of, of circumstances that makes it controversial and unsettled.
Yeah. And a difficult thing to negotiate as well uh, with the fact that he did have a family and, and his wife has gone on record as such. That she, there was a, a documentary, I think, um, about the, the whole thing. I think Sky uh, ran it over here. Um, okay. And, uh, yeah, she, did you see that? I you was in, in that. Yeah, 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 yeah. you were in that. That's right. No, you were, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was made by uh, Sonia Sohn, who played Kima on The Wire. So again, sort of more of those uh, oh. yeah, connections there. Interesting, interesting. And obviously you had to get approval and permission to portray the story in, 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 in a certain way. But you were, you, were, you were given a little bit of leeway, obviously, that you were left wondering how involved he actually was. Like there, there was hints that he was involved, but you st- then we still played the, the character of that. You know, he was wrestling with that whole idea, he was wrestling with his conscience, um, you know, af- after the fact. And, and that could be, you could be very right. That, that's what led to him uh, cracking up at, at the end. Um, yeah, no, incredible stuff. Like you could talk about all the things in the book without having one spoiler alert, because all it would actually do is make you want to read the whole thing to be honest with you it's so sensational but for for listeners maybe to give them a small bit of a, a, a taster one of the more audacious raids perhaps uh you know i think it's anthony shropshire and all that if you, if you could maybe tell our listeners a little bit about that antonio shropshire well he i mean he was he was one of the drug dealers who kicked off the investigation uh he's he was you know there was a drug operation taking place in northeast baltimore uh, and, you know, there's investigators from not Baltimore City Police from the na- the neighboring counties were actually seeing drug overdoses in their jurisdictions. Um, and so they uh, they kept finding out that the drugs were coming from this crew and they sort of wondered why the city police weren't doing anything about it. And it was in the course of investigating um, Antonio Shropshire that they, they put a GPS tracker on the uh, on, under his car so they could follow his his. Uh, whereabouts and when they arrested him and they went to remove the gps tracker there was another gps tracker uh and it came back registered to a member of the gun trace task force and so at first they didn't know is this is is this you know why is this officer investigating this guy but he hasn't entered it into any databases why hasn't he called us to ask us what you know what happened to his gps tracker and so they they decided to just very sort of carefully figure out where, where that was going and it led them onto the gun trace task force so again this, this, that's another one of the more remarkable things about this story this wasn't an internal affairs tip this wasn't a whistleblower it wasn't even a complaint from a from a, a citizen it was it was a pure coincidence that a drug investigation by county you know you know suburban officers into drug overdoses led to you know uncovering this massive police corruption scandal yeah and and the kind of numbers and in sums of dollars that these guys were siphoning off from themselves what kind of numbers were they were they pocketing yeah i mean you know sometimes it's 20 it's 20 bucks in somebody's sock and other times it's you know tens of thousands of dollars um there was one bust um and man, it's been so long since I thought about it. I don't remember the, the precise dollar amount, but it was in the yeah. six figures. Uh, wow. They found it in the safe. You know, they opened the safe. They took the money out. And this again, this is pre-body cameras, so they're trying to be clever. And they think, what what if we what if we close the safe back up, take out our iPhones, and record ourselves opening the safe for the first time? Mm-hmm. And that video was shown at trial. We portrayed it in the show. Um, you know. Um, and you know, they're all going, wow, wow, look at this. And, you know, really playing it up. And, and then Jenkins says, don't touch it. Don't touch it. You know, we, we're going to do things by the book. Uh, and then the officers report that they actually took the money. So, uh, that just shows, you know, and, and again, that was all sort of presented in court as 
here's how this went down. And there's no one to say otherwise. There was no one else in that room. There's no alternative video. They are trusted to go out and carry out the law. They go into court and say, this is what we did. And very often there's no one who's able to say that's not the way it happened. It's their word uh, against the dealer who wasn't even there. He was locked up. He just knew that he had more money in that safe. And it wasn't in his best interest to say, I had more drugs, I had more money. That would just implicate him in even more drug dealing. So he doesn't say anything. It's not until the feds start to figure this out that they come to, to him and his attorney and say, hey, we, we think there was some money stolen here. And, and he said, yeah, that's what happened. And, and in one sense, you could almost forgive them for robbing drug dealers. But like you say, those instances of taking the $20 out of people's sock, like that's real low scumbag stuff. Like, you know, what, like, you know, that to go to that level that literally every time you have an opportunity, you will take whatever somebody has, even if they have bugger all anyway, you know, because um, I know rehearsal in, in, in the show is portrayed at doing that, siphoning off dollars here and there. But yeah, God, it's, it's, it's incredible stuff. Like with, with doing your work and, and still working on crime, like where do you stand? It's just a personal thing, but where, where do you stand on, on opinion on the war on drugs? You know, or, and what next, perhaps? What, what can be done? Yeah, I don't have as strong opinions as uh, David does. You know, I, I, I understand sort of, you know, the way drugs impact the community, the way that, um, again, people don't want drug dealing in their community. Um, I think that, um, you know, it's often a means to an end, right? We see indictments charging a drug crew, but really they, they, they are worried about violence associated with that crew. I, I definitely don't think that we sort of, as a country, as a, as a state, as a city, sort of we aren't, we aren't, we have not progressed enough to the point where we're trying to treat the symptoms of it. We are still trying to do it through policing. Um, and our, you know, our overdose crisis here is, is extremely significant. I mean, there are, uh, we talk about 350 homicides where someone takes the life of another person. You know, we have a thousand fatal overdoses in the city, a thousand, a situation that seems far from a resolution. So I, you know, but again, I don't, I don't have, I, I, I tend to not have strong opinions on these things. I try to talk to people on all different sides and sort of report the best story that I can. What, what about the states in the United States, Justin, that have decriminalized or legalized drugs, okay? I don't know that, you know, which states in particular off the top of my head and what, you know, because there's different, some have decriminalized and others have legalized, which is obviously a little bit different. But is it work? Like, and, and sometimes it's only marijuana, right? Whereas in other states, I think it was just looking there at Oregon, um, small amounts of drugs, including cocaine, heroin, LSD, meth. And so all, all the hard stuff there as well. Have you seen in the United States where this policy of decriminalizing or legalizing is working, as per example in Portugal. I think this is where it all kicked off for us in Europe. And um, didn't they, Derek? This is where you know yeah. any any discussion about legalizing drugs in Europe centers around the Portugal model, who had a horrendous heroin epidemic, as we did ourselves, which devastated Ireland and in, in the case of Portugal. So they just they just stopped the war on drugs, and to put it in very simplistic ways, it worked. It, it, they won, you know, so now they have, instead of banging people up, they have clinics for treating people. And it's the model to which all European countries, considering decriminalize age, would, would look to. Do you know if that's the same, if, if that's how it's all starting to come into place in the States? Yeah, so we, uh, our state legislature just in this past legislative session did um, legalize marijuana that's coming in the summer. And during the pandemic, our uh, prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, 
Um, she's the top prosecutor. Um, and, and she said, um, we, we're not going to arrest people for small amounts of drugs. Now, she sort of positioned it as something that we were going to do for the pandemic. I think really she wanted to do it, but the pandemic was the excuse. And, you know, they found that people who had been arrested in the past for drug possession, you know, that they didn't offend in a more serious way, that it, it didn't it didn't didn't cause a negative uh, impact to not arrest people for that. Uh, we have a new prosecutor now, though, who is trying to send a message that he's going to be tougher on these things. And some people are saying it's history re repeating itself remains to be seen. I mean, we have a, a very serious epidemic here, not of marijuana, um, but, you know, heroin and fentanyl and, and, and things like that that are causing these overdoses. And, you know, there's talk about like safe injection sites and things like that. We haven't done that yet here. They're doing that in other cities. And we've sent officials to those cities to, to research that and see how that works. But we're still we're sort of talking about doing things in a different way, including mental health um, uh, calls. You know, when when police get called to somebody who's having a mental health crisis and not sending police, but sending like a counselor or a team that can try to defuse that situation. But we're not really putting our money where our mouth is with this stuff. We're not putting the same type of funding into it that we do in, into policing. And as a result, it's not it's not happening the way people would like to see it. So I think we're making like I think officials have a different perspective, but they're not quite, you know, um, funding it and and tackling it the way that they need to for it to make a big change interesting like i i think like colorado right was one of the first states to kind of roll this out and like subsequent like it was it was immediately all the all the tax dollars that they were making off the sale and um, of true licensed premises were paying for schools or paying for roads or paying for bridges it just seemed like a no-brainer you know all that money that they actually that surplus cash then that they had those that those tax dollars could be plowed back into you know the community and to actually treating addicts rather than putting them in prison it just seems yeah like it's a real it's, it's a real interesting thing in the states where each state gets to sort of de decide how they want to set this up so my brother lives in california and like for years and years and years there's places there's billboards selling you know advertising marijuana there's you can have it delivered to your home it's you know all these stores and here up until this year it was illegal <laughs> you can go to jail for it. you can car search for it so it, it, it's it's very it's yeah it's interesting how we have this patchwork in america it's, it, it's better certainly not to criminalize people because obviously you put them into the system and then you know you got a situation where they are you know destined to a life of crime because they can't get a job and they can't get all that that kind of stuff the only thing i have a problem with is like you know it would have been back or grand back in the day you know we were all teenagers and it was cheap moroccan or Af afghan hash that we were smoking and, and there was uh you know very little uh, uh not much of an aroma of it but now now you you get the the lewis which is the tram system into dublin city and you know the, the second you you open the the door slide open you walk out onto saint stephen's green boom, you get hit in the face with a with a smell of weed, you know, because um, everyone's grown it now at home. So other things, so I don't know, but it's still, I would still be of the opinion, you know, don't criminalise people in, in, in that way because if, if you can't get a job and all that stuff, what, what's left to do but, you know, work the corners um, as as is the case down in obviously Baltimore. But it, it, it appears to me as well that Baltimoreans in general are very proud people like you seem no matter what through a lot of challenges are hanging on and really wanted to you know take the fight to bring your city back to the way uh, it was which is probably a lot more than could be said for say Detroit which has literally you know has, has, has been devastated but is it difficult as a Baltimorean then to watch shows like The Wire and We Own This City does, does it leave you with feelings of shame or is it like you know you're you're glad this is out in the open now 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, and as a point of civic pride, yes, people are constantly sort of bemoaning the wire and saying, you know, because it's like, you know, there's television shows and movies set in all major cities in America, but the, the things that happen in those shows don't quite stick to those places the way that has stuck to us in the wire. Um, you know, people aren't watching, um, you know, Miami Vice and saying that, oh, that's what Miami's like, you know, but but that's but I think that's a testament to David and his partners where they they, they that's because what happened in that show was accurate and true. You know, it depicted parts of the city that people that some people would rather not talk about. They don't want people to know what goes on. That you know, we have a beautiful. I'm right now in the inner. In our, in the I work for the Baltimore Banner now. It's a nonprofit newsroom. We have an office in the Inner Harbor. The Inner Harbor is beautiful. It is safe. <laughs> there is wonderful things going on. There are new tall buildings and cranes and mm. you know just. But like the parts of our city that are struggling are really struggling. They're emptying out. We had an article two weeks ago about how you know black residents are leaving at an extremely high rate. And that's because they are fleeing poverty and, and these vacant houses that are crumbling and falling on people and catching fire and shootings. You know, they're saying we don't want to live like this. Now, there, there's a flip side to that of people who are sort of seeing an opportunity there to, to try to you know fix those neighborhoods. But by and large, those neighborhoods have been ne neglected and disinvested. And so to the extent that the show, you know, the, the wire and we own the city sort of shine a light on that aspect of it, that that, you know, that's something that happens. It's something true. And I would say that, you know, I think that people need to work harder on fixing them as opposed to getting upset when someone exposes them. But, you know, I, I, I do understand that it's perhaps more complex than that. Uh, but that's my that's my take on it. And what are you still working on now? You just mentioned that you're working for another publication at the moment, Justin. Are you still with The Sun? What's what's your what are you doing? Yes. As as chronicled in the last season of The Wire, <laughs> the Baltimore Sun has mm -hmm. gone through some difficult times over the years and, and has shrunk considerably. And we, as a, as a staff, tried to get uh, uh, the corporate owners to sell. There was a local businessman who wanted to buy the Sun, and, and we had a Save Our Sun campaign, um, hoping that they would sell. They refused, and that businessman said, I'm going to start a new place uh, from scratch. And he put, he's a billionaire, supposedly, and he, he uh, you know, was putting, you know, $45, $50 million into the, into the funding up front to build a newsroom that is, that is not just a, a couple of people and trying to prove that they are deserving of people's subscription money, but that we can have a, hundred, a newsroom of 100 people right out of the gate and do important work. So I joined the Baltimore Banner in January of last year. We launched in the summer. Um, and I'm an investigative reporter still working on crime stories, working on stories about the vacant homes and who owns them uh, and who's responsible for that. And I got a great team with me. So, uh, yeah, still still here, still trying to uncover stories about about Baltimore and expose things that need to be exposed. Well, well may I say, and here's an opportunity, uh, Neil, for you to get your, your oar in as well, being, being a reporter. The importance of investment journalism, it's been wiped out absolutely nearly been wiped out in the last last few years and it's so necessary to a, a functioning society and especially now in the age of well can you believe it's true depending on who, who's writing it you know what is news and and the copy and paste um news just drives me insane so there's no there's, there's the very reportage at the most basic of levels and then you still got a question it's true so things like the you know the, where you're working now in the Baltimore banner like they I mean yeah thank god there's still people willing to to go to lens to put those kind of stories out what yeah think, and that you know? kind of reporting is you know difficult you know it takes time there, there might you know and and I think we're still 
um, the whole industry is still trying to figure out, you know, the New York Times is thriving. They're bigger than ever. The Washington Post is thriving. You know, local journalism is so important to me. Um, I, I really honestly feel like uh, there's so often that I am covering something that I know that if I was not covering it, it would not get covered. And I, and I would like to think that my presence and, and showing up every day and, and talking to people sort of keeps people honest to a certain extent. You know, when the police try to not release a report or they try to keep something and we fight back and we try to keep keep that uh, transparency going. And I just think that that's incredibly important. So but we're trying to figure out, you know, how can we get subscribers to pay for it? You know, we we cannot exist just off of clicks and advertisers. We need people to support journalism that they appreciate. And so we're trying to put out a product that we hope that uh, they feel is worth paying for. But it's difficult. And it's an experiment. You know, there's no uh, assurances, despite, you know, our, our initial funding that this, this can keep going. But it's going well so far. And we're really encouraged. That's really good to hear. I'm just fascinated to hear you talk just because we're in the exact same process. We're on the different side of the, the pond or the Atlantic, you know, and have the exact same um, sort of challenges you know we're kind of in a hybrid mode at the moment where we still f- sell physical newspapers um, but you know man the sales drops are just jaw-dropping you know when you see the sales figures and like a lot of our work a lot of my work now 98% of it is online for free you know and that's you know it's the clicks and the numbers every day that we watch the figures you know and putting it all out in social media so we're in the same boat regardless all all journalists i'd say just like trying to figure out that that magic medium where you can actually have people pay for good journalism when they're not buying newspapers anymore you know and it, it is it, you know our, our boss boss was was on national radio here not so long ago saying he sees you know and he's only thinking ahead five ten years no more newspapers which as a yeah, newspaper we- is is pretty pretty heartbreaking yeah the the banner is online only and i i know that i've spoken with some you know older residents in particular who say you know i I still want that paper copy and we made a decision that this was you know this is the way it's going and this is how we were gonna do it but i do get nostalgic about not having any you know front page stories you know that i can sort of clip out but it also feels like you know when you walk past the the newspaper boxes they're all just sitting there and everybody's on their phone line so i don't know um See that all the yeah. time. Newspapers are physically stacked up on the Sunday in the morning. They're this high, and you come back in the evening, it's this high. Nothing's changed. No copies have, have gone off the shelves, you know. But like, look, you know, there's like Derek just mentioned there, and as you know, well know yourself, preachers are converted. There's always going to be a requirement and a need for quality, good, good, good journalism, you know. And I, I would certainly encourage if my kids express an interest to get into journalism, I wouldn't put them off, you know. I would, I would say it's a good job. And like you just hit hit the nail on the head kind of touched off me something there you know when you do good work you know without being too you know hyperfluting about it like you do know sometimes when you do make a difference or like you said if you didn't show up if you weren't there it just wouldn't be reported you know so that work is still is still going on and long may it last indeed you know absolutely and, yeah and one thing just to ask as well as i mentioned earlier on about the racial divide within the actual police force so is is there are, are they a unified front do um do black officers sometimes feel resentful that they are policing their own communities? Are are they hard asses to their own communities? Um, you know what what's the dynamic like? Yeah, I think that that's something that um gets overlooked a lot. Um, that you know the officers who were made up this task force were mostly uh, black officers. Um, I think there's a you know I think what people say is that there's like a sort of a blue front they aren't they aren't white or black but but blue and i feel like a lot of uh black officers that i've really had a chance to talk to in depth over the years they're perhaps from the city or from you know cities with similar challenges and they feel as though sort of 
well, I didn't commit crimes, you know, uh, you know, it's a choice and that, you know, I'm here to, inf- to, keep, to enforce the laws and, and keep people safe and, and go after people who make the wrong choice, you know? So I think that that's, you know, a component of it. This sort of a, you mentioned earlier, sort of the money being taken from drug dealers. I think that that, that did play a, a role into it saying, you know, who, who cares? You know, they're sort of looking down on these folks that, that they're less than, that they're not likely to be believed and taking advantage of that. And that's not a, a racial thing that's sort of a, a power versus you know lack of power kind of thing so um you know i, I think that that bears out in, in who we you know but I, there's absolutely a racial component in terms of when white officers you know sort of sort of profile people or or um you know again are, are perhaps more fearful of someone who doesn't look like them but we also see that some that in, in other cases that doesn't matter at all yeah, I was trying to uh, think of where you might have been taken around by the by the police in Ireland. Isn't it the K, Neil? Isn't that the, the name of the... K District. The, the K District, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's, where, that's where all the magic happens, apparently. So I wonder if uh, that, uh, that's probably... Well, if you're dealing with a, a college student, you're probably somewhere near Trinity or something like that, Trinity College, uh, and maybe not not out the K. So you, you probably uh, yeah, you, you probably missed the, the, the good stuff. Yeah, we got the whole... They, they, they showed me all around. I was in the main I area... Near Trinity College, in, indeed, and uh, and then they took me out to some of the, you know, I don't know if this is the right word, but the slums, the you know, yeah, yeah, apartment buildings that are very, you know, and we, you know, there's, I, we came upon like a like a stick fight in the you know parking lot and things like, that. So, yeah, saw something. Welcome, welcome to my beat, Justin. Yeah. Welcome to my beat, um, Derek. As much as we would, love to keep yeah, just I think you got to let him go and get fantastic work. He's- very generous with your time, Justin. You know, went a bit overboard, but I mean, you know, we're really, really, really looking forward to talking to you. And, and yeah, all our expectations were met. Meet your heroes, as they say. And if you ever do want to do a job swap, no worries, man. I'll, I'll, I'll go over there. I'd be fascinating. I'd be fascinating. I'm, I'm due. I'm, I'm due for a return visit. <laughs> I, I, can, I can bring you to some good stick fighting. Um, when yeah. You're- yeah, legal stick fighting, um, and, and there's yeah. a ball involved as well. It's called hurling. Yeah, very good. Excellent. Okay, well, so thank thanks you so much, uh, Justin Fenton. And, uh, our listeners, uh, yeah, do pick up a copy. We own this city. Um, really sensational stuff. And uh, thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Much, see. Hey, there we go. What a great show. What a great show. Brilliant. Yeah, Lovely. yeah. It's 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 fascinating stuff, everyone, though. You know, I know people, most people will. You know, if you haven't watched The Wire already, Jesus, you know, where have you been? Uh, <laughs> You've been under a TV or, rock. Yeah, completely. Or or just too young, perhaps. You know, I, my kids haven't seen The Wire. I don't think yours have either. But uh, yeah, no, it's amazing still, stuff to think this, this goes on. I mean, I, I yeah. can't imagine it happening in Ireland. Um, I can't really imagine it happening in most other European uh, jurisdictions. Um, it seems almost unique to being stateside possibly um but like how they thought they could get away with it and he's he's uh wayne jenkins um yeah. is younger than us he's born he, 19 yeah he's born 1980 and he's from what i understand i meant to ask justin that as well um but he, he's not you know sorry like he's, he's not no he's, this like, is the thing is that, that i just find just fascinating you know, he, he he's depicted as that as kind of going, what did I do wrong? Like, do you know who I am? Like, you know, he's taking all these guns off the street. There's a, there's a touch of the, you know, psycho, uh, psychopathy about that. You know, you're actually almost proud of, of what you've done. Yeah, and yeah, the, yeah. the fantasist element as well, I think, plays a, plays a role in, in, in psych. Um, and, he, you know, he, he's living in his own legend. 
Yeah, well, great story. Great storyteller there with Justin. And uh, yeah, what a great episode. Okay, you're heading off to karate. I'm heading off to soccer yeah. ball. And we yeah. will put this out in a couple of weeks, folks. Or you'll be listening to it when we put it out in a couple of weeks. And yeah. keep it <laughs> <laughs> Social media and lots of really cool upcoming episodes coming down. Yeah. Nice one, Neil. Take it easy. Take it easy, there. Thanks. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all. In fact, we will be offering a paid subscription tier. More on that later. And anyhow, if uh, you don't have it, don't worry. Keep tuning in. We'll be here.